Robert Parker, how could you give up all the gentle, tweedy pleasures of English professorhood <laughs> for being the amanuensis of a tough guy detective engaged in shootouts and slugouts in and around Boston. What is this, Milton's Comedy Hour? <laughs> How could I give that up? In a heartbeat, in a New York second, as they say. I wrote your predicted answer, which you didn't give me. Uh, I can't read it without my glasses. It was on. easy. It was easy. Is, uh, <laughs> that's, the law. that's the short answer, yes. Let's make clear instantly that we're rather old friends, yes. and I know a hell of a lot about you. You even know A little too much, maybe. And you know a good deal about me. And we've often exchanged views on professorhood since yes. I'm stuck with it and have been. I'm not stuck with it. I've really enjoyed it a good deal, but I've been a professor a long, long time. How long did you last? Uh, if one includes the time I started teaching as a teaching fellow in a Ph.D. program, uh, uh, I lasted uh, from 1962 to 1978, 16 years, uh, at which time I was a full professor teaching three hours a week every Wednesday from 12 to 3. Uh, my, I quit teaching, and my wife said to me, but you're only teaching three hours a week. I said, yeah, but every week. Yeah, so, uh, and I was m hmm. pulling in, I think, $17,500 every year just for doing and that. And you were professing English literature. I was professing American and English literature, and then after I had begun to write, I was professing uh, fiction writing. Badly. Spencer, S-P-E-N-S-E-R, like is poet. undoubtedly named for Edmund Spencer sure. and reflects your literary background, as, of course, so much else in the Spencer novels uh, does or do is so much else as that singular or plural. <laughs> yeah, the professor, I'm not anymore. You're the, no, you're, you're the English professor. <laughs> I'm, I'm not only, anymore. <laughs> I'm only a psychology professor. Oh, I'm sorry about that. But speaking as a psychology professor, we need to talk about this special genre. It isn't just mystery fiction. It's the prototypically American brand of mystery yeah. or detective fiction. Yeah. Uh, the master may have been Raymond Chandler mm -hmm. or if earlier, of course, Dashiell Hammett. Mm -hmm. Or who else should one mention in that well, certainly it is Hammett and then Chandler, uh, probably Ross MacDonald, though his star has declined a little bit. Uh, I always like to include Rex Stout, who really combined both the English and the American uh, in a rather clever twist with the well, genius. Well, Nero was the English style, I guess, yeah, and, Archie and Archie was the was American, American yeah. guy out right, on the streets. Right, right. He was wandering the mean streets. Yes. There was that famous quotation from Chandler, which, did you use that in your doctoral dissertation? Oh, I'm sure I did. Everybody else does. Down these mean streets. A man must go who was not himself mean, who was neither tarnished nor afraid. And is that Spencer? Is he neither tarnished nor afraid? He is neither tarnished nor afraid. Uh, he is certainly happier than Marlowe was. Uh, he has a context much more than Marlowe. He has a, he's got a nicer girlfriend, too. He's got a girlfriend. Marlowe never did. Uh, he has a kind of uh, surrogate uh, child in Paul Jacobin. He has friends, you know. He has a friend named Hawk, and he has friends around that pop up. So there's a much larger company. Marlowe had himself and occasionally Bernie Oles would reappear. But other than that, Marlowe was the quintessential loner. Well, these are, in fact, triangular novels. There is Spencer, there is Susan, and there is Hawk. Yeah. And the Spencer-Hawk combine is in another great American tradition, and Leslie Fiedler is an expert mm -hmm. on that. Well, come on back to the raft against Hawk, honey. Uh, yes, Hawk is black, uh, Spencer is white. And uh, because I am overeducated, I am playing around with that... Uh, connection between uh, the white and the non-white uh, men in American literature that goes back uh, to its beginnings, uh, Leatherstocking and, uh, and Chingachgook. I'd like to prove that I can say it. Later on, I'll find a reason to say Yaknapatafa County, too, to prove that. Uh, and uh, Queequeg and Ishmael and uh, on Huck and Jim. You and can so even forth. say Queequeg. Queequeg, yes. And uh, one could look mm -hmm. in more popular culture and... Uh, See the old the popularity of the old I Spy television series, or the Lone Ranger and Tonto. And the... the area in which the new book Double Deuce operates 
is one uh, that Hawke necessarily would be profoundly interested in, and Hawke is, in a sense, the leading figure mm -hmm. in this book, though Spencer's along with him for one-third of the action, I believe. Yes, yes. Hawke is getting nothing, and uh, Spencer wanted half, and Hawke said, that's too much, I got the job, I'll give you a third. Yes. But, of course, you're dealing with uh, the great American dilemma, the one that Gunnar Myrdal mm -hmm. named the American dilemma mm -hmm. 40 years ago. And he was right. And it and still he was is. Right, and it still is, and it's even worse. Yeah, and it's not getting better, and no one seems to have any good ideas. Uh, and I don't either. You know? <laughs> I was given a talk uh, someplace, and a woman in the audience toward the end of my um, remarks uh, stood and said, I know that you live part-time in Los Angeles, uh, and you've just returned. And I wondered if you had uh, anything to say about that and any hope for us and a solution to the problem. I said, no. <laughs> I, I have no hope for you. I have no solution to the problem. Uh, it has given our leaders an opportunity to stand up and be foolish in public. Uh, when Rodney King is the most eloquent spokesman for the situation, you have to wonder uh, where mm -hmm. Dan Quayle and uh, George, what's his name, are. The rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. And I don't know what to do about it, except we've got to do something about well, it. Well, you've got no solution for the phenomenon, but you do indeed have an explanation. Yes, I do. Uh, which is of considerable interest. Now, I want to come to that shortly, but let's develop a little bit of the structure of this book. It begins with a prologue, yes. which is the shooting of... Uh, Devona Jefferson, a 15-year-old yes. black girl. And her baby. And her baby. Which was probably an accident, because probably no one noticed mm -hmm. the baby. So the murder to be solved is that murder. Yes. Although the issue is larger than the murder, uh, and uh, the title Double Deuce is an allusion to an imaginary ghetto in Boston, which is located on an imaginary address, 22 Hobart Street, and the kids being kids call it Double Deuce. Sure. Do you uh, see that in Dorchester or where? Well, it's in Roxbury, Roxbury. Uh, which is the Boston black neighborhood. I don't know. When the uh, East Boston is the Italian neighborhood, but we don't call it an Italian ghetto. Mm -hmm. I'm never quite sure why that is. South Boston is Irish, but it's not an Irish ghetto. Anyway, the black neighborhood in Boston is Roxbury and en environs. Uh, and uh, the issue comes down to the confrontation between Spencer and Hawk and uh, a bunch of young men in a gang led by a man named Major Johnson. They're called in to get rid of this gang yeah. and to get them off the... Get them out, out of project. that housing project, yeah. that double Move them someplace else. By a group of concerned black citizens led by a Reverend Tillis, who reminds me a good deal of a New York figure. Gee, I don't have any idea who that would be. Uh, you, you smile, you laugh, so I think you did have Al Sharpton in mind. Well, well I think he's a conglomerate of a lot of people, but uh, well, there's exploitation of the situation by a lot of people mm -hmm. of various colors. Uh, and uh, not everybody is good that's trying to work on the problem. The leader of the gang, the leader of the black youth gang that Hawk and Spencer come up against is Major Johnson. Mm -hmm. That's his name, not his title. Yeah. And uh, in him, I think Hawk sees himself as a younger man, and in Hawk, Major sees what he aspires to be. Uh, and Hawk is a kind of ghetto legend the way Connie Hawkins was in basketball in the New York playgrounds. He is uh, a figure of... Uh, such esteem because he's achieved what the rest of the kids can't. He's not just wealth, but freedom. He's out. He's his own man. He does what he wishes. He goes where he wants. Uh, and uh, the connection between Hawk and Major gets, I hope, somewhat complicated uh, and is resolved uh, in ways that I think I'll leave up to the readership. Yes, indeed. Of course, we don't want to give the ending away. But there is a passage in here which I found most significant. I suggested a moment ago you've got an explanation of sorts, mm -hmm. and of a good sort, I think, for what goes on. And you also, of course, write superbly in a distinctive style. And so in the style of Robert Parker, I'd like you to read 
some of Robert Parker. Fortunately, Indeed, I have my glasses. Indeed, I have marked out a whole page, two pages rather, and a quarter. This is what I used to do when I was trying to fill a lecture. Begin uh, at the beginning, give it your best okay. shot. I kept two water glasses in the office. In case someone were overcome with emotion, I could offer them a glass of water. Or if they became hysterical, I could throw water in their face. I also kept a bottle of Irish whiskey in the office, and Aaron Macklin and I were using the water glasses to sip some of the Irish whiskey while we talked. Momentary interruption, let's define who... Uh, Aaron Macklin Aaron. is a uh, former nun who works uh, the streets. Uh, she's white. She works for the kids. She is loosely based on a woman that my wife has talked to on the phone, to whom this book is partially dedicated, a woman named Karen Panasevich, who is also white and who has worked with these kids so long that the kids say she's become beige. Uh, and uh, I don't know Karen. My wife just talked to her on the phone, but... What Aaron Macklin says is much of what I learned from Karen Petisevich. A little kid, Aaron Macklin said, goes to the store. He has to cross somebody else's turf. means he has to sneak. In a car, he has to crouch down. The amount of energy they have to expend simply to survive. She paused and looked down into her whiskey. She swirled it slightly in the bottom of the water glass. They live in anxiety, she said. If they wear the wrong color hat, if their leather jacket is desirable or their sneakers, if they have a gold chain that someone wants, they are in danger. One out of four young men in the inner city dies violently. These kids are in a war. They have combat fatigue. And they're mad, I said. I had shut the overhead light off, and the room was lit like film noir with my desk lamp and the ambient light from the streets casting elongated vertical shadows against the top of my office walls and spilling their long black shapes into my ceiling. I felt like Charlie Chan. Yes, she said, they are very angry, and the only thing they can do with anger, pretty much, is to harm each other over trivial matters. She took some of her whiskey in. She sat still for a moment and let it work. Something has to matter, I said. Yes, she said, that's exactly right. Are there turf issues, I said? Sure. But a lot of the extreme violence grows out of small issues between individuals. Who dissed who? Who looked at my girl? Who stepped on my sneaker? Something's got to matter. You get it, don't you, she said. I didn't expect you would. I figured you'd be different. It has always seemed to me, I said, that there's some sort of inverse ratio between social structure and, what, honor, codes? Maybe a little highfalutin for the issue at hand, but I can think of nothing better. By honor, do you mean interdirected behavior, she said, because these kids are not interdirected. No, I know they're not. I guess I mean that nature hates a vacuum. If there are no things which are important, then things are assigned importance arbitrarily and defended at great risk, because the risk validates the importance. Erin Macklin sat back in her chair a little. She was holding her whiskey glass in both hands in her lap. She looked at my face as if she were reading directions. You're not just talking about these kids, are you, she said. Am I right in selecting that as maybe the core passage in the book? Yeah, sure. Uh, something's got to matter. The uh, the facts are Aaron Mac or uh, Karen Panasevich's. The conclusions are mine. Mm -hmm. She's not responsible for the conclusions. <laughs> but it seems to me that uh, now I don't know how to solve that problem. I don't know how to give all of the people who need something to matter something to matter. But it seems to me that as long as there is nothing else to matter, then they're going to put their stock in being brave or being tough or in whatever. When Aaron ends that passage by saying to Spencer, mm. uh, I'm not, you're not just talking about yourself. Mm. She means you're talking about you, Spencer. Yeah. 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 Sure. So Spencer's in the same dilemma that. as these ghetto kids. He understands that because he understands uh, how necessary values are and how danger can authenticate oneself if there aren't mm -hmm. other things to authenticate. These kids are in a perhaps uh, tougher situation, but for people in the, without many beliefs, the world is like that. You are listening to The American Reader. Robert Parker is our guest this week. He is the author of Double Deuce. This is what, the 18th Spencer novel? I, I guess so, yeah. Uh, and there are some five other novels. Yeah. 
And there's another one written and will be out next year. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I want to come back to that in a moment. But of the 18 Spencer novels, can you think of any other that has directly addressed what is an outstanding, should I say, public policy problem or what have you? No, this probably is the most... Uh, I mean, uh, it has long been said by people that I address things with oblique social criticism, but this is clearly uh, uh, my take on the most central problem in the country. I like it very much as a book. Uh, I think it's a stunning performance. You've sharpened or honed your style to absolute intrinsic Parker, uh, and, there's you, no, and there's nothing better than that in this realm. But, of course, you're not really writing as the purveyor of a thriller novel. You're writing what you take to be serious literature, yeah, I think. Yeah, sure, sure. I'm trying to do the same thing Faulkner did, uh, that I come out shorter than he was, has to do with the fact that his imagination was larger than mine, not that I'm writing about a detective or not that I'm trying to be popular. I'm working just as hard as he did. I just am not as talented a writer as he is. Well, you're a pretty darn well, I'm satisfied talented. with what I am, but uh, yeah. I haven't gotten the Nobel Prize yet. Well, when they start giving a Pulitzer in detective fiction, <laughs> you'll be in the running, of course. But do you feel any constraining uh, consequence of working still within the formal genre of the detective thriller? None at all. No. None at all. Uh, yet you've written a new non-detective novel. There'll be one, yeah. Uh, I don't even know the name of it yet, uh, and I haven't completed it. I have completed another Spencer, which will be out next year, called Pimperdall, mm -hmm. and I'm at work on a novel about three generations of uh, an Irish family in the Boston police force that covers most of the century, say Easter Day, 1916, in Dublin to current times. And uh, I do that once in a while because I want to. Uh, Is that new one still in the works longer and sort of a Bildungsroman? The, the new Spencer novel is... Not is longer than the regular Spencer novels. The new, what no, I've called the cop novel. For the cop novel is what I'm talking about now. Yeah. Uh, no, it sounds somewhat, rather panoramic. Or it might be. Well, it is, attempts to be. Uh, it's miniseries, you know. Uh -huh. uh, but it, I think it has to do with uh, original sin and uh, things like that. How things two generations back move on down the line. Now, Daddy, tell me about love. There's an interesting angle uh, subplot in this book. Uh, Spencer and Susan, who are very well matched and mated and have loved each other for a long time, have always lived separately, so mm -hmm. to speak, but have often joined their two separatenesses. Ah, yes. But uh, this time Susan says, it's time you moved in. Mm -hmm. And Spencer does. Mm -hmm. What else do you want to say about that? Well, I think I'd like to leave the consequences once again to the readership, but... Uh... Your publisher hasn't, you know. Oh, I, or have they? I'm I not sure. I, yeah. I try not to In pay too much attention. Yeah. I, to my, I don't ever, ever read the publicity materials. It embarrasses me. Well, I think it, I am correct in saying that this is the single leading series in this genre oh, of so, fiction yeah. in the country, yeah. in the world, I suppose. Probably. You're in the usual 17 other languages, aren't you? Sure. Or yeah. is it 32? I don't know. It's all of them, you know, yeah. uh, including little funny ones now that Eastern Europe has broken up. <laughs> what are you reading these days? I, I have Maximum Bob, Elmore Leonard's book in my mm -hmm, suitcase. And uh, I have been reading in little pieces uh, Simone Charman's book, uh, An Embarrassment of Riches, about the Dutch Republic, mm -hmm. just in case someone asks me what I've been reading and I can say, you know, something good. Uh, that's about it. Well, I'm working towards one of those portentous interviewer questions. What that you did read do you think shaped your own literary identity, your own literary aspiration? For that matter, the style. It's obvious that there's something utterly Hemingway-esque about your sure. writing. and I think that uh, me or uh, or Dutch Leonard uh, 
or probably almost anybody over 40, any male at least over 40 who writes, is probably influenced by Hemingway. I mean, maybe they write against Hemingway. You know, maybe they try mm. not to sound like Hemingway, but I think they're influenced. Then they try to sound like Faulkner. Yes, that's right. That's the other one. Uh, I, he, uh, Hemingway is indescribable in his influence. Raymond Chandler uh, grabbed me and uh, held me, and I grew up wanting to be Philip Marlowe and more realistically to write like Raymond Chandler. Mm -hmm. Probably the most influential writer I ever read. And I think the finest novel in America is uh, The Great Gatsby, which I reread periodically. You grew up, though, wanting to write like Raymond Chandler. Then, of course, you did write like Raymond Chandler. Yes, yes. Is that special caper of yours. <laughs> as much as I could. Yeah. Two novels, Poodle Springs. Poodle Springs and Perchance to Dream. Well, Poodle Springs was the completion right. he had started of something it he had started. And died, and uh, I finished it. And Perchance was an original, the sequel but to the Poodle Springs, Lee. you only had about, what? Uh, Thirteen pages. Thirteen pages of Chandler, and the rest yeah, was you. yeah. Uh, it was uh, interesting, challenging is a nice way to put it. Hard is the more accurate way to put it. I was happy with my the results of the completion, and I was pretty happy with Perchance to Dream as a sequel, and I don't want to do it anymore. Uh, it's too hard, and it's not mine. You know, in the little time that's left to us, about four minutes or so, I want to come back to what is the central preoccupation of this book and the sure. serious subject of this book, namely urban violence. I mm -hmm. guess that's what the sociologues call it these days, don't they? A quotation, if I may, just to maintain the proper literary tone of this conversation. This is from, of all people, <coughs> Brendan Behan. How does one define Brendan Behan? Uh, a, uh, an Irishman who drank. An Irishman who and drank a lot. Wrote plays and poems. But and who said out. in his play, The Hostage, a bit of shooting takes your mind off your troubles. It makes you forget the cost of living. Hmm. Could almost be an epigraph mm. for Double Deuce, don't mm. you think? Yeah for people for whom there is a uh, few other alternatives. Uh, a big kiss on the head, do it for me, you know. I mean, but I have, <coughs> I have what I need, you know, uh, for people who have nothing else. Uh, I don't think it is the pleasure of shooting so much as it is the opportunity to put yourself at risk in defense of something, which then proves that you care about it and makes it seem serious. I mean, what can be serious about bullfighting except the danger to the bullfighter? Or the bull, depending on your perspective. I mean, if you just want a dead bull, why don't you just shoot him, you know? Uh, we talked about Hemingway. We've talked about um, the ghetto and life in the ghetto and ghetto gangs and the desperation with which they face life. I've just come back to this quote from Bean. All of this revolves around or circles the central question of uh, machismo, I suppose, mm -hmm. in its many forms. Mm -hmm. Spencer, of course, and certainly Hawk, are also dedicated to yes. or are perfect emblems of the virtues of, or at least the high achievements of, machismo. Uh, what, uh, what a psychiatrist friend of mine referred to as the classic masculine mode. Well, what do you make of that classic masculine mode? Why is it there? How might it best be used? What disasters does it bring? I don't know, Milt. Uh, I probably have modeled my life uh, without too much violence on the classic masculine mode. Uh, but people equally as dandy have not... Uh, I think it is uh, probably an inheritance of the time when physical strength and all were important. Among many animals, I've had dogs all my life. The male dogs push the female dogs around, uh, although they don't ever fight with them, and they'll fight with each other over the females. Lions do that, you know. Uh, I, I assume it is probably some part of the, uh, the grand evolutionary scheme, which... Uh, the ways of the Lord are often dark but never pleasant, I think Theodore Reich once said. And uh, I think it's probably genetic, and uh, I'm not sure we can unlearn it. 
but certainly we could, if we knew how, put it to better use. But we one, don't know how. One use that's being put to, or one channeling it's getting these days in this country, I suppose around the Western world, is that movement, whatever it is. Um, Robert oh, Bly is oh. associated with it. Oh, and men go out days. into the woods and beat drums and sweat a lot. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I, I've not read the, his book. I don't think I probably will. Uh, I I hung around and slept on the ground with men for a couple of years in Korea, and I don't need to do it again, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I think that's that's as silly as the women's movements, that, uh, you know, the sisterhood is strong and a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. And uh, ex- at, the, at the extreme uh, expression of most points of view, are reasonably ludicrous, and that one sounds quite ludicrous to me. So you think that perhaps the ultimate revelation is male and female created it them? Yeah, I'm afraid they did, and uh, whatever it thought that <laughs> they should be. Uh, I mean, you know, they, uh, the for Dan Quayler's to rant about family values, I'm, nobody's opposed to family values. I have a family and I value it. But that's sort of like the old peace slogans, you know, smile on your brother, give peace a chance. That's not the issue. The issue is not that we should. The issue is how you're going to achieve it. You don't tell people, you don't tell us kids, it's like Nancy Reagan saying, you know, just say no. Mm-hmm. You can not tell the Crips and the Bloods in South Central L.A., just say no. Well, listen, time is really up, but I, I have to persist, and please take half a minute or even a minute if you must. Uh, what can be done about the Crips and the Bloods and about the Major Johnsons and their gangs? You said earlier you just have find no a idea way, what... Find a way to give them money for several generations. And uh, then, probably, that's that's easier said than done. Give them money, or give them money for meaningful work. Yeah, get them. Find, give them a way to get money. Yeah, you know, I mean, you, a kid can't go. Uh, a kid living in South Central LA can't go out to uh, Anaheim for a job. He hasn't got a car. There's no way to get there. You know, it's got to be a way for them to do that. I don't know how. And I don't feel too bad about that because leaders are leadership. Well, happily for you, time is out. You don't have to solve this problem in this conversation, at least. And uh, let's end with congratulations on the excellent Spencer Double Deuce by Robert Parker, published by Putnam. And thank you so much for coming.